Hi everyone, and welcome to Dark as Hell. I'm your host, Maggie. There's a story that Leticia Sutton likes to tell about her oldest daughter to paint a picture about her personality. A proud graduate of kindergarten, a home video captured the moment when she crossed the stage of her elementary school auditorium to accept her certificate. Only to immediately turn towards the audience the second she had her paper in her hand and she broke out into a rendition of the Running Man dance that reportedly, quote, slayed the crowd. That was Matrice. Matrice Levon Richardson. The Matrice Richardson that most of the world knows, however, is part of less heartwarming anecdote and more blood-chilling horror story where the concept of apathy is at its heart. Apathy, it seems, that was practiced by a police department who more or less watched and waved as a woman whose mental health stability was in question was released from custody that would have kept her safe and disappeared into the night in an area she didn't know without any money identification, or means to call for help. And that apathy followed this police department throughout the torturous search for, and eventually discovery of, that same woman, dead in the hills that they released her out into. The role of law enforcement is one that's been a forefront of national conversations this year. It's been clear for years, decades, really, that that role is something that needs to change in monumental ways. What's also clear when it comes to the role of the Lost Hills Sheriff Department is that their role in Maitrese Richardson's disappearance and subsequent death, their role is also monumental, and they have made it abundantly clear over the years that they will go to great lengths to keep hidden just how monumental a role law enforcement played in Maitrese's death. This is the story of Maitrese Richardson. Let's get ready to get dark as hell. Maitrese Richardson was born on April 30th, 1985, and she was as stereotypical a tourist as they come. Big of heart and big of attitude, that was Maitrese. She was known to be a bit of a princess, even, quote, a ham, as some friends said when it came to her propensity for performing, but she was a hard worker with big goals to go along with her big heart and attitude. Maitrese's parents, Leticia and Michael Richardson, had a contentious relationship, and they eventually divorced when Michael was sentenced to eight years in prison in 1989, when Maitrese was only four years old. He had found himself involved in one too many felonious activities and would spend his time behind bars at Soledad State Prison. While Michael was in jail, Leticia remarried a man named Larry Sutton, and the family moved out of L.A., 
Letizi especially, was eager to get her daughter away from the volatile energy surrounding the area following the Rodney King riots. And so, they settled in the San Gabriel Valley in a town called Covina. Michael ended up only serving four years of his eight-year sentence, and he had made considerable leaps and bounds in getting himself together to avoid a repeat of his incarcerated years. Though Maitrese was primarily raised by her mother and stepfather, as she grew older, she eventually became close with her biological father, who lived in South LA after he was released from jail. In Covina, Maitrese thrived. She was a cheerleader, heavily involved in several dance programs, always taking some sort of movement class, and she was well-liked enough by her peers to be considered popular. She dabbled in modeling, and the high cheekbones and slender build that she inherited from her mother helped her make the rounds on the beauty pageant circuit as well. Maitrese wasn't just a beauty, though. She had the brains to back it up. Social butterfly, she might have been, she didn't let any of that get in the way of her academics and always maintained high grades in order to reach one of her first big goals, going to college. After graduating from South Hills High School in 2004, Maitrese enrolled in California State University Fullerton and she became the first person in her family to go to college. In 2008, she graduated with honors from Fullerton. She had majored in psychology after discovering her professional passion lay in the psychology field. She knew that her next logical step would be to head to grad school. So, as most postgrads do, she decided to move home, make some money, and start saving in order to take that next step in her plans. Maitrese's personal life also went through some exciting developments in 2008. By this time, she was a fully out and proud lesbian. She had a girlfriend, Tessa Moon, who she'd been dating for some time by 2008, and the two were complimentary counterparts, as Tessa was, quote, an avid boxer who contrasted with Maitrese's love of all things feminine and dancing. Maitrese was able to utilize her love for dancing as a means of helping to save money for grad school as well. After graduation, Maitrese moved to South LA and lived with her maternal grandmother, great-grandmother, Mildred Hughes. She soon took a job go-go dancing at a local lesbian bar named Deborah's as supplemental income to her job performing clerical work for a shipping company that Tessa's father owned. And at the same time, she was also interning at a family friend's clinical psychology practice. She adored her go-go dancing gig by all accounts. So much so, she created a stage name for herself, which was Hazel, and she even made business cards for this side hustle of hers. Her dancing took her on more modeling auditions to a party at the Playboy Mansion, and she even won a reggae twerking contest in Hollywood. The first post-grad year is always an exciting one, and simply put, Maitrese was definitely having an exciting time of things. 2008 was... A good year. Busy, but good. It was transitional, full of potential and exciting possibilities. 2009, though, that was another story. As 2008 turned to 2009, the energy of the previous year didn't 
exactly follow my trees. By that spring, she and Tessa had ended their two-year relationship, and things following started to take a decidedly strange turn. In the absence of her long-term girlfriend, Maitrice seemed to focus her attentions on a longtime patron of Deborah's, the lesbian bar that she danced at. This woman, named Vanessa, actually had a girlfriend herself, but according to Los Angeles Magazine's incredible report on this case by Mike Kessler, that little fact didn't stop Maitrice. Apparently, quote, she was obsessed. So infatuated was Maitrice, allegedly, she decided to drive out to Las Vegas by herself after a shift at her dancing job, because that was where Vanessa was celebrating her birthday that night. It's unclear, though, if Maitrice was even invited. Eventually, Vanessa was said to have told Maitrice to leave her alone and stay away from her because her attentions simply weren't welcome. This wasn't the only strange behavior that Maitrice started to exhibit, though. Her social media posts took a drastic change in tone, and in the times they were posted as well. Friends and family started noticing that Maitrice wasn't just posting weird comments and status updates. She was posting them at all hours of the day and night. Rarely did they make much sense. On one MySpace post, she wrote, quote, Have you ever woke up at 7 a.m. crying on a Saturday because now that you see the light, you see all the people lost in the dark? Welcome to my reality. On one of her final Facebook posts, she remarked that, quote, I just want to sleep, lol, but you know me and my crazy ideas. Let's see where they take me. People began to wonder if Maitrice was sleeping at all, given her odd hours of posting abnormal social media commentary and her own comment on the fact that, quote, I just want to sleep. Investigators would later find other strange writings of hers. They were said to be, quote, erratic journal entries where the writing switched from clean and neat to staggered and illegible within the same pages, sometimes within the same sentences. The exact contents of these journals, though, or their writings, they've never been made public. There was something about writing that seemed to speak to Maitrice at this time in her life. So much so, she stopped regularly using the phone to talk or call people, and she relied primarily on texting, texting similarly unusual and often unsettling messages. Her mother, Letizzi, was on the receiving end of a number of them and eventually called her daughter out. In one exchange, Letizzi texted her daughter this, quote, You have to tell me what's going on with you. You've been somewhat elusive and philosophical. Tell me what's up. Have you found yourself in a state of sadness? Are you crying without reason or understanding? I'm concerned. Help me understand what's going on with you. Are you feeling lost, helpless, alone, rejected? Maitrice's response didn't exactly answer her mother's questions or assuage her worries. She said in reply, quote, I'm writing a book, in parentheses, my journal, because you told me I can be anything I wanted. You told me I was Miss America. You told me I was America's next top model. Now do you know what I want to be when I grow up? Miss Mother Nature. 
'Cause Miss America is a fake ass joke along with everything else we quote see. So I'm trying to find my way to Michelle Obama to see if she will talk to Mr. Obama about creating my position within the White House. I feel joy, mommy. Not everyone has to die to live. I heard in the Bible Jesus dies so we can live forever. Now I have to prove the quote unlogic. All of Maitrese's strange behaviors had piled up to the point that many people in her life were concerned about her, yet it doesn't seem like anyone made any moves for definitive action to get her any help. Allegedly, she spoke to one friend about seeking therapy, according to LA Magazine, but it appears that Maitrese never actually went through with that idea. It's here that we come to the first overarching theme of today's case, mental illness, and specifically in this story, whether or not Maitrese was suffering from some sort of mental health crisis. There are a number of reports, sources, and pieces that have claimed in the past that Maitrese was out and out clinically diagnosed as having bipolar disorder, but that isn't necessarily the case. It actually has never been hard and fast confirmed beyond a shadow of a doubt that Maitrese was bipolar. It's also never been hard and fast confirmed that she wasn't diagnosed as bipolar either. Tessa, her former girlfriend, has contended through the years that Maitrese never exhibited any strange behavior and certainly wasn't diagnosed with any mental health concerns. Some family members agree that Yes, Maitrese never had any mental health problems, while others state the opposite. There are some reports that have Leticia, Maitrese's mother, stating she was bipolar, but those same reports are far and few between. The only thing that is consistent with this story is the fact that we simply don't know one way or the other if Maitrese had ever been diagnosed with any mental illness. What we do know is that something, that we don't know what precisely, something was wrong. And whatever that something was, all of it came to a head on Wednesday, September 16th, 2009. By all accounts, Wednesday, September 16th, 2009 started off fairly normally for my trees. Things were... Still a little odd, sure. Her mother woke up to another string of strange text messages, and when she arrived at her clerical job, a co-worker noticed that she was, quote, in an unusually bubbly mood. But things had been a tad weird when it came to my trees lately, so no one thought too much of it. And then the afternoon came. Maitrese reportedly did a handful of tasks at her job in the morning and then took off for her lunch break, which she never returned from. It was here the day started to take a turn that was decidedly less strange and more so worrisome. We don't know the exact timing of all the stops Maitrese made throughout the afternoon, so you'll have to bear with me on that one. After Maitrese left her job, she drove to her great-grandmother Mildred's house in South L.A. We don't know what all happened during that stop, but we do know that when she left, 
she made no mention of where she was headed. From Mildred's, Maitrese drove out to her Aunt Lauren's house in Inglewood, which is about a 15-minute drive between the two areas. We can only assume this was her next stop because no one was at the house at the time, and there have been no other reports of anyone coming into contact with Maitrese during the afternoon. It wasn't until the early evening that her Aunt Lauren discovered Maitrese had been there, and she quickly realized that her visit had happened at all because Lauren's front porch was scattered with dozens of Maitrese's go-go dancing performer, Hazel, business cards. There was another sign that Maitrese had been there as well, a note she left on her uncle's car underneath a windshield wiper. LA Magazine describes the note as being, quote, a collection of random thoughts and doodles with this message written on the paper, quote, I, TM as in the trademark sign, Uncle Johnny Jimmy. In the right margin, she'd scribbled the words, Black Women Scorned. She signed off with one of her famous air kisses, moi. No one knew what to make of it. And no one knew where Maitrese was to ask her the question that had been following her for some time now. What was going on? By the time anyone in Maitrese's life realized something was definitively wrong on this particular day, she was already gone. Out of the city and driving up the Pacific Coast Highway as the sun began to set. It's unclear if she even had a destination in mind. But as she drove the 40 miles in her 98 Honda Civic, she later claimed, quote, the lights were what drew her to eventually stop. The lights of Jeffrey's Malibu. Jeffrey's Malibu is classic California coastal cool. The twinkle lights that wind through thick, ancient-looking trees cast a glow over the outdoor seating space with tastefully muted, small tables overlooking the Malibu Vista. It should be noted that the California coastal vibe does come with a Malibu price tag. On the website, Jeffries doesn't even list their prices for any of their offerings, which is always a silent indicator of an establishment's extravagance. So, when... Maitrese pulled into the valet parking section at Jeffrey's, the valet on duty already thought something seemed a little odd. For one, Maitrese admittedly wasn't dressed for a place like Jeffrey's. LA Magazine reports that when she got out of her car to let the valet park for her, she was wearing, quote, a Rastafarian-style hat, a long-sleeved white t-shirt under a black Bob Marley tee, vans, and fashionably distressed jeans with a pink alligator pattern belt. When the valet returned from parking her Honda Civic, he found Maitrese in his car, rifling through his glove box. Confused, he asked her what she was doing, and she allegedly responded that, quote, it's subliminal, and then began talking about how she was going to, quote, avenge the death of Michael Jackson, who had been dead for just about three months at the time. Just as quickly as she had jumped onto the topic of Michael Jackson, she looked at the valet and asked with a misplaced sense of familiarity, quote, Vanessa here? The valet had no idea who or what she was talking about and could only say as much in response. It didn't appear to bother Maitrese, though, and as she finally walked into the restaurant, she advised him to, quote, keep an eye out for the girl with tattooed arms. Somewhat perplexed, the valet decided to give the hostess a heads up about the girl entering the restaurant. He would later say that he thought she was, quote, 
harmless but weird, an odd duck but not a threatening one. Mitrice was seated by herself and she ordered a Kobe Wagyu steak and a cocktail nicknamed the Ocean Breeze. Her single diner status didn't last long, though. At some point, Mitrice invited herself to sit with a large group of seven other diners whose conversations and laughter had apparently drawn her attention and interest. Once again, she was saying what she was saying didn't make much sense to anyone. She waxed poetic about astrology, announced that she was from Mars, and told the other diners, who were more bemused than put off as they told a worried waiter who came to check on them, that she was moving to Hawaii and she would reach out to them again when she arrived. She would wander back and forth between their table and her own, where she ate her steak, but consistently returned to the other diners to carry on with her confusing conversations. Credit where credit's due, and I've got to give it to this table of seven for being so nonchalant and entertaining my trees during what must have been a completely bonkers dining experience. The table of seven left eventually, and my trees went to walk out after them soon after they departed, except she was stopped at the door. The manager, who no doubt had been kept abreast of the strange guest eating at the restaurant, pointed out an important factor. She hadn't paid her bill for the meal. Maitrice responded that the table of seven was supposed to have paid for her, except that was not the case, as the manager was forced to explain. All she could say was, quote, I'm busted. What are we going to do? As the manager spoke to her, Maitrice apparently stared off into space, then stared transfixed at the computer screen at the hostess stand, and continued making odd comments, including her claim that she was from Mars, and another comment about how she was, quote, settling her debt with sex. She then physically turned out her pocket in a display of tr trying to prove that she had no money, and instead, a joint fell out. It was at this point one of the restaurant staff quietly called the Lost Hills Police Station. According to the 911 report, the staffer told the dispatcher that, quote, we have a guest here who is refusing to pay her bill. She sounds really crazy. She may be on drugs or something. The thing that highlights how wrong something seemed to be with Mitrice's mental state at this point is she did have money. It was just in her car. She had left her purse with all of her identification, bank cards, and her cell phone, as well, in the car. So the question becomes, why didn't she go out to her car? Was she really trying to get someone else to pay for her meal? Or did she somehow forget that she had access to money? Was she aware of the fact that she did have money in the car? Or was she in the grips of a mental crisis that didn't allow her to remember or recognize that fact? Maitrice's commentary throughout the night may have been odd, laughable in its absurdity, but this small detail is one that really offers a sobering look at how wrong something really did seem to be with Maitrice. The distance between Jeffreys and Lost Hill stations is about a 20-25 minute drive, so the staff still had a fair bit of time to figure out what to do with Maitrice before the officers arrived. She was still spouting off commentary unprompted when the hostess picked up on something Maitrice had been saying. She'd been remarking how, quote, God told her to take the afternoon off, which led her to making the drive up the PCH to Jeffries, and then switch topics by saying, quote, she didn't have any parents, only her great-grandmother. 
Obviously, we know this isn't true, but the hostess was quick on the draw. She asked Mitrice if she wanted to call this great-grandmother, and thankfully, Mitrice could remember Mildred's number from memory, which is how Mildred answered a call from Jeffries, alerting her to the situation her great-granddaughter was in. While on the phone with the hostess, Mildred offered to pay for the meal with her credit card, but given that it was 11 years ago, the restaurant couldn't accept the number over the phone without her signature. Mildred had no way of faxing it since she didn't have a fax machine or printer, so they were at an impasse once again. While Mildred was still on the phone with the restaurant, it was at 9 p.m. that three officers from the Lost Hill Station arrived. Deputies Frank Brower, Armando Loreo, and John McKay. As the officers were appraised of the situation, it appears that Loreo spoke with Mildred on the phone while the other two officers went out and searched Mitrice's car. Now here is where something weird happens. We know Mitrice's purse containing her wallet, her phone, and other important essentials were in the car. But when deputies Brower and McKay finished their search, they made no mention of finding these things in the car. They didn't even mention them in their subsequent reports. Instead, what they did find and what they did report was that inside of Mitrice's car had been her license, marijuana paraphernalia, and half-empty bottles of alcohol. So let me ask, why was it that the officers only reported finding these things in the car? Why was nothing else mentioned? When Brower and McKay returned from their search, Loreo reportedly told them that Mitrice was, quote, possibly drunk, making odd statements, and ordered Brower to perform a field sobriety test, which Mitrice passed. The staff, meanwhile, didn't know what to make of things. Despite her strange behavior, by all reports, the waitstaff and management, they were genuinely concerned for Mitrice's well-being, and they didn't want something bad to happen to her. They debated paying her bill themselves collectively, but then realized that she would have been simply let go at that point with only a ticket for the marijuana possession. And they had witnessed for themselves her increasingly erratic behavior throughout the night, so they knew it wasn't safe to let her drive a car, much less to just let her wander off. So, in the end, the manager decided the best course of action would be to file charges, which then placed Maitrice into police custody. She was charged and arrested on one count of, quote, defrauding an innkeeper, which is apparently what they call dining and dashing in legal lingo, and she also received one count of possession of marijuana for the less than an ounce amount that the officers found in her car. Speaking to LA Magazine, the manager, who has remained anonymous over the years, still shaken by his role in the events of the evening, he said he thought he was making the right decision by handing Mitrice over to the police since, quote, he reasoned she would be safer in custody than out on her own. He said that knowing my trace was headed for the station, quote, it was almost like a blessing to my heart at that point. Like, okay, good. This is all going the way that it should. I doubt anyone had any idea just how wrong the night was about to go. Maitrice arrived at the Lost Hills police station via the back seat of a squad car, as her own car, 
containing everything crucial to her, like her cell phone and wallet, was impounded at a tow yard along the PCH. She was officially booked at 11 p.m. The same mother that Maitrese claimed that she didn't have called over to the station after hearing from Mildred the situation Maitrese had found herself in. It's unclear why, but Leticia never spoke to Maitrese when she was on the phone with the deputy working the front desk that night. Maitrese was given the chance to call someone after being booked, and she told the officers that she would call Mildred again. The phone records from that night show Maitrese placed four calls while she was at the station, but she did so on a non-recording line because the recording payphone was broken at the time, so we have no idea what she said. Officers allegedly overheard Maitrese talking on the phone to someone, but no one has any idea who it was or if she was just speaking to a dial tone because Maitrese didn't call Mildred. Mildred claims that her phone never rang that night after she received the call from Jeffries and her phone company backs that up with their own records that showcase no calls came in the rest of that night. So truly, no one has any idea who Maitrese was speaking to if she was even speaking to anyone at all. Leticia, for her part, was only able to speak to one of the deputies at the front desk. As it was close to midnight, she wasn't too keen on making the 50-minute drive out to Lost Hills and back when her other daughter, 10-year-old Maya, was fast asleep. Given the strangeness of Maitrese's recent behavior, she also thought the idea of Maitrese being forced to stay the night in jail might prove to be the wake-up call her older daughter clearly needed. She asked the deputy over the phone several times if Maitrese would be safe to spend the night at jail, and he, multiple times, confirmed that. Maitrese was already having a close eye kept on her, she was going to be held until the morning, and she would be perfectly safe in the station for the night. Still, though, Leticia was worried, as any mother would be. She voiced her uncertainty, saying, quote, I think the only way I will come and get her tonight is if you guys are going to release her tonight. She is not from that area, and I would hate to wake up to a morning report of girl lost somewhere with her head chopped off. It's an eerie sort of premonition, looking back now. But the deputy again talked her down. My Teresa's being watched, she was safe, and she wouldn't be released from their custody until the morning. Eventually, Leticia was won over. She thanked the deputy, resolved to call back in the morning to see what needed to be arranged, and hung up at around 12.30. About five minutes later, Maitrese was released from custody. She had been booked at 11 p.m., released just after 12.30, and then told that she could sleep in the lobby while waiting for the morning when her mother would pick her up. But as we all know, thanks to copious amounts of law and order marathons over the years, if the police aren't holding you, you're free to leave. And that's exactly what Maitrese did. She left the Lost Hill station, walking out into the darkness without a wallet, without a phone, without any idea of where she was going. Less than two hours in police custody, and Maitrese Richardson was gone. At 5.35 a.m. the next morning, September 17th, Leticia called to Lost Hill Station again, 
ready to figure out how to get Matrice back home now that her strange night was finally over. On the other end of the line was a woman named Sharon Cummings, the jailer on duty. And she promptly told Leticia that Matrice wasn't there. She hadn't been there for hours. Leticia was confused. She had been told time and again just hours before that Matrice would be safe at the station for the night, that she hadn't needed to go pick her daughter up. Cummings simply responded that Mitrice had refused the, quote, offer the officers had made her to sleep in the lobby and had instead told the on-duty staff as she walked out the door she was, quote, going to meet some friends. Now, it should be noted, Cummings was aware that Mitrice's car was impounded. She knew Mitrice had none of her personal effects. It was past midnight, and Cummings knew Mitrice was walking out into the night into the Malibu Canyon area, where the closest parts of Malibu itself would require a 16-mile hike through the canyon to get back to civilization. And they simply let Mitrice go. Letizia hung up with Cummings, called back within a few minutes, and asked to speak to a deputy instead. Deputy Kenneth Baumgardner was given the call, and, as he hadn't been on duty the night before, he had to be filled in by Leticia about who Mitrice was and what her situation had been. Once he had been informed about what was going on, Leticia asked if she could file a missing persons report or if she had to wait 24 or 48 hours. Baumgardner responded like this, quote, You know, I guess probably 24 hours would be reasonable. I mean, if there would be some mitigating factors, you know, where you might suspect something is not quite right. Leticia at this point was crying over the phone, and we know what they said during this conversation because this phone's recording was working. Leticia explained that she was concerned for her daughter because she had never been in the Malibu area before, and she believed Mitrice was, quote, highly depressed in a depressive state. All Baumgartner suggested was, quote, why don't you wait a couple hours and give us some time to make sure Mitrice isn't asleep in the lobby? Then why don't you give us a call back in a couple hours, and if she hasn't shown up or made contact with you, then maybe we can do something for you. Not knowing what else to do, Leticia hung up. Something I feel I should point out here. What Baumgartner said to Leticia about filing the missing persons report and waiting 24 hours to be reasonable, that's false. Law enforcement agencies in California do not require a minimum of any amount of time to have passed before you can file a missing persons report. That's actually stated on the LAPD website regarding missing persons. It states that. There are California penal codes that lay it out even more extensively. Quote, it is the duty of all law enforcement agencies to immediately assist any person who is attempting to make a report of a missing person. Another one says, quote, the local police or sheriff's department shall immediately take the report and make an assessment of reasonable steps to be taken to locate the person. Let me be frank, you don't have to wait 24, 48, you don't have to wait one hour to file a missing persons report. The Lost Hills Department apparently wasn't concerned about that, though. 
About an hour after this call, at 6.30 a.m., another call came into the station, this time from a local man, Bill Smith, a retired reporter who had an odd encounter that morning. He explained over the phone that, quote, we had a prowler walking around through the backyard here, but we don't know what the situation was. Smith's house, it should be noted, was six miles west of the station in a town called Monte Nido, which is located at the bottom of one of the local hiking areas known as Dark Canyon. He lived in a gated community, so it's unsure how this person would have been able to get in, especially during a time frame where the sun's light still wasn't fully shining. To the dispatcher, Smith described this prowler as, quote, a slim black woman with Afro hair and said he'd spoken with her. When he'd spotted her in his yard, he opened a window to ask if she was all right, and the woman responded that she was, quote, just resting. By the time he moved to a different window to see what was really happening in his backyard, the woman had vanished. Lost Hills offered to send out a cruiser, but nothing of note was found when they arrived. They waited several more hours into the day until they finally issued a bolo, be on the lookout. But by then, it was clear. My trees had simply vanished into the canyons. If it hasn't been made apparent to you yet, the investigation conducted into Mitrice's disappearance was, from the absolute jump, almost entirely bungled. The Lost Hills sent a cruiser to check out Bill Smith's house. They didn't actually start their search until two days later, back at Bill Smith's house. Like I said, his house was located six miles away from the station, and yet Lost Hills refused to use scent tracking dogs to figure out if it, one, was Mitrice who had been in Smith's yard, and, or, two, how she had managed to wind her way through the unfamiliar terrain in the dead of night. Outside of Smith's house, officers discovered prints that had come, to, had come from Mitrice's vans, especially as Smith claimed that he didn't recognize the prints. From the positioning of the pattern, officers determined that she had been walking and then suddenly started running. However, the prints became lost and jumbled amongst the other prints, paw prints, and even hoof prints of the walking trails. Officers, though, didn't bother to go further into the Dark Creek area or the Dark Canyon itself once they discovered that. Further complications arose with the matter of jurisdiction. Since Mitrice was a resident of the city of Los Angeles, Lost Hills passed jurisdiction of her disappearance off onto them, though they still remained very heavily involved. Three days into the search, her case was redesignated again, this time from LAPD's missing persons unit over to the LAPD's robbery homicide unit. For some reason, LAPD officials claimed the switch was made because the robbery homicide unit, quote, had better resources, but they also maintained the switch was only done for that reason and not because the case was turning into a homicide. With the LAPD on the case, they were able to retrieve Mitrice's car from the impound lot and search for it themselves. While doing so, they discovered everything that the Lost Hills officers had not mentioned finding. They found her wallet, her bank cards, and even determined that she had enough cash on her that night that she could have used it to pay for her dinner at Jeffrey's. They also discovered her diary. 
Within the diary, investigators believed that the strange writings and entries Maitrese had made proved what many had been suspecting. Whatever was in the diary, we don't know for certain what it said, but investigators came out to state that they believed Maitrese hadn't slept for five days at the time of her arrest, and they believed that she was in the midst of a manic episode. On the 19th, two days into her disappearance, the Richardson family was told that the search efforts would reach new heights and that the police were prepared to, quote, pull out all the stops in a two-day-long search of the area. They were told helicopters, dogs, and all of these better resources from the LAPD would be used to assist them. Except when dawn broke on the 19th, the massive and exhaustive search efforts the family had been promised, they didn't exactly pan out. Instead, only four deputies were assigned to the search, and they merely checked out some of the different neighborhoods in the Montenito area, since that was designated as the last place Maitrese had been seen. Allegedly, the search stopped before it even got dark on the 19th, and the second day of searching didn't even happen. The Richardson family realized they would have to take matters into their own hands. Armed with their own flyers, Maitrese's family posted her face and name up and down the PCH and all throughout the area. They spent days bringing awareness to the case and conducting their own searches without the help of the better resources that they had been promised. And then, on September 20th, there was an email. An email sent internally with the subject line, I spoke with Lorio. Lieutenant Scott Chu seemed to be concerned. He was not the arresting officer the night of Mitrice's incident at Jeffrey's, but he seemed to be concerned about the man who was the arresting officer, Deputy Armando Loreo. Chu, on September 20th, wrote to his superior officer, a Captain Thomas Martin, writing an email that allowed him to get his thoughts on paper. Within the email, which was obtained by Mike Kessler over at LA Magazine, quote, Chu says the arresting deputy, Loreo, booked Maitrese because he wanted to make sure she was all right. She was a little ditzy at Jeffrey's, and a deputy checked her for intoxication. She wasn't drunk, but Loreo felt she was acting unusual and was uneasy about letting her go. In the end, he brought her in because of his instincts. The fact that she disappeared validated his instinct. Those are direct quotes from an officer. But what's odder still about this email is how Chu ended it. It almost comes off as some sort of justification for the clear mistakes the station made that night. Chu wrote, quote, At the station, it became obvious she was well-educated and intelligent, so there was nothing to justify keeping her overnight. This email and its optics are not great. In fact, one might call it damning because of the clear fuck-ups that are laid out by an officer to boot. It admits the officers who arrived at Jeffrey's knew something wasn't right with Maitrese and that they knew she shouldn't have been released. But in the same breath, one of these officers still attempts to justify the fact they released a woman who is believed to be unwell because she was well-educated? I just, 
what I would give to see the whole email because to me, in what we can see, it reeks of an attempt to cover tracks, truly and honestly. And what makes this email even more interesting was how quick to deny its existence most of the Lost Hills department became. Chu has since come out to say that he doesn't remember writing this email or even talking to Loreo about the case. Loreo, for his part, says he doesn't remember this alleged conversation with Chu either. He has also since denied ordering Deputy Brower to perform the field sobriety test on my trees, and has also denied ever saying she was, quote, making odd statements. Instead, he now insists that she was of sound mind. Things continue to get ever more interesting because despite all of this denial about this one email, the email is included in my Teresa's case file. So that's a pretty fascinating contradiction. Five days after Chu sent this bizarre email, the Lost Hills Department issued an addendum to the sobriety test, which seems, again, like a massive reach to cover tracks in my mind. This addendum stated the new party line everyone was trying to adhere to, aka that Mitrice, quote, appeared to be entirely aware of her surroundings and did not seem confused. It appeared that Lost Hills had finally realized just how poorly the optics were becoming for their involvement in this case, a case which, I should remind you all, Mitrice was still missing, so they called in their spokespeople. In the middle of October, the Sheriff's Department spokesman, Steve Whitmore, stated that Mitrice, quote, exhibited no signs of mental incapacitation whatsoever. She was lucid. She didn't exhibit any mental problems. She exhibited no signs of mental illness or intoxication. She was fine. She's an adult. He then pointed out that she had taken a sobriety test at Jeffrey's, which, again, directly contradicted the claims Loreo was trying to make that he had not ordered the test to be performed. I have a qualm with these claims of did they or didn't they, the Lost People, Lost Hills people were going back and forth with when it comes to the sobriety test. One does not just decide to administer a sobriety test without reason to do so. There was a reason Mitrice was tested, and though Lost Hills might want to claim otherwise, the reason we can assume was because something wasn't right with her state at the time. Otherwise, seriously, why would you perform a sobriety test on a woman who's behaving normally, dare I say soberly? The whole reason the police had been called in the first place was because Mitrice was not acting normally. All of this just, it's an exercise in watching people scramble to cover their tracks. It really is. And thankfully, Letizia saw right through these various stories the police were trying to present to her as well. As spokespeople tried to get their stories straight, and Sheriff Lee Baca went so far as to write to the L.A. County Board of Supervisors in November that year, stating that, quote, all applicable laws, policies, and procedures were followed when it came to Mitrice's case, Letizia had a request to make. Show us the video footage. 
Letizia wanted the jailhouse footage from the cell that Maitreese had been kept in because she believed it would either bolster the police's story that Maitreese had been fine, or it would blow that same story out of the water. Captain Thomas Martin, though, the same man Lieutenant Chu had emailed on the 20th, told the Richardsons this. There was no footage. In fact, he was quoted on a local news show as saying such, verbatim to the Malibu Surfside News. Captain Martin stated unequivocally, quote, there is no video or tape of any kind. And just, my God, the audacity of some men is truly something to behold when their backs are to the fire. Because wouldn't you fucking know it, there was a tape. There was footage. And it had been hiding in Martin's desk for the entire time, until he was forced to confess to the tape's existence on January 6th, 2010, to Letizia's face during a meeting that included Sheriff Baca. Interesting timing on this meeting, it should be noted, because four days later on January 10th, after Martin was forced to admit that the video existed, the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department finally conducted the extensive search that they had promised the family they would perform back in September, complete with, quote, 336 trained searchers scouring 18 square miles of ridges, canyons, and trails on horseback and on foot, aided by dogs and a helicopter. It wasn't enough to distract the family, though. Though the video was revealed to, you know, actually exist, it would still be another three months before my Teresa's family was allowed to view it. And once they had, something else became abundantly clear. They still weren't being told the full story about what happened to my Teresa that night. My Teresa had arrived at the Lost Hills station and was booked in at 11 p.m., on September 16th, 2009. She walked out of the station just after 12.30 a.m. on September 17th. But the video shown to Letizia and a small group of other people close to Maitrice, including the family friend psychologist that she had interned with, the video showed an entirely different story than the one the Lost Hills Department had been telling them in the months after Maitrice's disappearance. It wasn't until March 2010, after claims from the Lost Hills police that technical difficulties were the cause of the holdup, that the family was allowed to finally see the footage of Maitreese in police custody. On that September night, she vanished into the Dark Canyon area. What they saw, quote, sent chills down their spine, according to an interview with Malibu Surfside News. In the beginning of the video, in what is called quote, the book cage, where people are held while in the middle of the booking process, my trees can only be described as looking stressed. From this Malibu, Malibu Surfside News interview, quote, Leticia stated that she clutches at the mesh screening and is rocking back and forth side to side like a small child. She's grabbing at a door where she's swinging back and forth. She's pulling at the back of her hair. As the video went on, Letizia said that at one point, quote, it looks as if she can't make the telephone calls that the redacted booking records say she attempted to place to her great-grandmother, Mildred, 
And at another point, quote, it seems as if her daughter is seeking assistance from personnel and is being ignored. It was also clear to those who have seen the video that it had been edited. Leticia claimed that there were, quote, blips between moments of the video, and there was one moment in particular that caused her concern. In one frame, Matrice is holding a piece of paper, and then the video jumps, cuts, and in the following frame, the paper is now crumpled on the ground instead. Speaking to LA Magazine, Leticia wondered, quote, why won't they show us how that piece of paper got that way? When they withhold information, it causes suspicion. Did they cut important footage? The clinical psychologist Maitrese interned with, Rhonda Hampton, offered her own professional opinion on the video's contents as well. Quote, Clearly, something is very wrong. This is not normal behavior. At one point, Maitrese appears to be trying to get into a fetal position face down on the concrete. But it was Leticia's nephew, Joseph Sutton, who noticed something that stopped the family cold. Quote, As the tape finished rolling and everyone's attention was focused on another officer, a uniformed deputy can be seen exiting the station right after Maitrese left. There is no doubt that is what is on the tape minutes after Maitrese was released. The family had never been told about this officer who followed Maitrese out of the jail. And more to the point, the Lost Hills Department refuses to speak about it either. They have never released the name of this officer, and they continue to refuse to do so. The clear attempts at hiding something are as obvious as they are infuriating. As Michael, Maitrese's father, put it, quote, the guy leaves the building right after my daughter, and they don't tell us anything about him? He could have abducted her, offered her a ride to the impound lot, left her for dead, and come back for her. Maybe he didn't see her. The point is, why have they been hiding him? After viewing the video and realizing how much the police were still keeping from the family, Leticia and Michael finally filed a lawsuit against the Los Angeles Sheriff and County Departments for both negligence and wrongful death, despite the fact Maitrese was still missing. Leticia had begun coming to terms with the fact that her daughter might not be coming home, and she decided to take the legal action in order to get the next best thing, the truth. As she stated, quote, this magical lawsuit will allow me to obtain every single document in the hands of the Los Angeles Police Department and to depose every officer and every detective involved. My Teresa's loved ones, though, were about to be in for another shock, 11 months after she had gone missing. Dark Canyon Park Rangers were on a mission on August 9th, 2010. They were on the lookout for illegal marijuana growing operations, tiny micro farms, you could say, that growers started in the canyon because of its remoteness and how difficult particular areas of the canyon were to traverse. As the rangers climbed, hiked, and carefully wound their way through the treacherous terrain, they found something that they hadn't been looking for. A human skull. And nearby a naked body in varying states of decomposition. 
with a sinking feeling, the rangers called in their discovery to dispatch, who then alerted the Lost Hills Department. The events of that afternoon played out like this. A publicly identified deputy from Lost Hills, which was only eight miles away and, coincidentally, two miles away from Bill Smith's house, arrived at 1.30 in order to protect the remains until the coroner could arrive on the scene. It wouldn't be, uh, be until almost 3 p.m. that anyone alerted the coroner that a body had been found in the Dark Canyon area, which pretty much directly contradicts a California penal code that, quote, dictates law enforcement should notify the coroner the moment it learns about human remains. Time stamp check. Deput Rangers found the body around 12, 1230. The first deputy doesn't arrive on the scene until 130. The coroner isn't told until three. As most of us crime lovers know, remains cannot be removed from a scene until a coroner can establish the scene, collect evidence, and sign off by granting permission for the body to be moved once they've concluded their own evidentiary collection. Another California penal code actually states that, quote, a body shall not be disturbed or moved from the position or place of death without permission of the coroner or the coroner's appointed deputy. Just a few little rules to keep in mind. At 5 p.m., the coroner's seven-man team was at the Lost Hill Station, where they had been waiting for quite some time, waiting for a helicopter to deliver them to the site of the body. By 7 p.m., there was still no helicopter for Assistant Chief Coroner Ed Winter and his team, but there had been one made available for two detectives, Dan McElderry and Kevin Acevedo, to be flown down the tricky terrain. By 8 p.m., a decision was made by the police on the scene. As Winter wrote in his coroner's report, quote, "...against the direction of Assistant Chief Winter, Los Angeles Sheriff Department detectives collected the remains and airlifted them back to the Lost Hills Sheriff's Station. As it was later reported by the LA Times, quote, the coroner insisted that he was very clear with the sheriff's officials regarding how the remains should be handled and could not think of another case in which a police agency had moved entire skeletal remains without coroner's approval. Let's play all of that back quickly. A body is found at around noon. It takes an hour and a half for one deputy to arrive on the scene, a scene which is eight miles from the station and is attended by a deputy who has never been identified. The coroner is not immediately alerted to the presence of the body for almost 90 minutes after that deputy arrives, which is against penal code. By 5 p.m., the coroner's team has yet to be taken to the scene the detectives were. And by 8 p.m., roughly eight hours after the discovery and around six and a half hours that law enforcement had been left alone with the remains, the body was removed against the advice or approval of the coroner. Also, during all of this, no evidence had been collected. The police didn't even take photographs. The only photographs came from the park rangers who had discovered the body that was, eventually, identified as Mitrice Richardson. 
According to Clea Hoff, a United Nations forensic anthropologist who consulted on Mitrice's case, quote, sheriff's personnel apparently didn't photo document the scene or in situ positions or the individual stages of recovery and didn't collect soil samples. The coroner had no understanding of the body in relationship to the place. They only had the body that was brought to them. Almost any other supporting evidence or clues from the scene would have been helpful because Matrice's body, much like her behavior and her disappearance, only begged questions. Mike Kessler did such a fantastic job with his reporting on Matrice's case, I just want to read verbatim his account of the state that her body was found in. So here we go. Quote, Hair clung to her skull. More hair was scattered nearby, an earring and bits of something metallic tangled within it. Mitrice's skull was fully detached from the neck and resting upside down without its mandible on the upper torso, a result of gravity, nudged by curious animals, or worse. Five of the neck bones weren't even recovered that day, including the hyoid. Her right leg, caked in soil and sprouting weeds, sat about two yards upslope from the body, atop a mound of dry vines. The femur of the leg had been removed from the soft tissue as if it would have been pulled from the top of the thigh. There was nothing but a narrow duct where the bone should have been. Moreover, the leg bore no signs of having been ravaged by animals, which, in any case, would normally drag something of that size downhill rather than uphill. One investigator posited that animals removed her clothing, only a portion of which, jeans, belt, and bra, was recovered. Given the location of those items, this would mean that scavengers took off Mitrice's sneakers and socks, unbuckled her belt and slipped it out of its loops, then unzipped and tugged off her jeans before removing her underwear. The animals would have unfastened her two-hook bra and gotten it out from under her. Next, they'd have dragged the detached right leg uphill by the thigh, as opposed to a more mouth-sized foot or ankle, which would have revealed bite marks, and then positioned it atop a cluster of vines, at some point pulling out the femur. They'd have to carry the jeans and bra 500 feet and 600 feet respectively down the canyon, drop them in the creek, and carry the belt another 100 feet downstream to hang it on the mess of vines where it was found. Finally, the creatures would have had to eaten or otherwise disposed of Mitrice's two t-shirts, underwear, socks, and sneakers. The metallic fragments and earring in the detached hair, an earring that Mitrice wasn't wearing at the time of her arrest, weren't sent to a crime lab. Bug egg casings on Mitrice's body weren't tested to determine when the flies had hatched or whether they were consistent with the environment, evidence that could have helped determine the time and place she died. Dirt and leaves weren't tested for blood. No craniotomy was performed to look for evidence of trauma. Pubic hair, though present on the remains, wasn't combed for suspect hairs or foreign fibers or tested for semen. Nor were the articles of clothing near the scene. Another aspect of Mitrice's death that remains shrouded in questions of my own. How, after allegedly 11 months in the open air, did her body come to be mummified? Mummification doesn't make sense in the environment that she was found. Quote, 
Natural mummification is defined as a state of preservation that renders the flesh leathery but lifelike and is usually the result of immediate and prolonged post-mortem exposure to sub-freezing or extremely dry environments. That's not the case for Malibu's temperament and certainly not an area filled with naturally scavenging animals and the ilk. Another detail that brings the mummification into question, the state of Mitrice's left arm and how it was found. According to Koff, the UN forensic anthropologist, the rigid positioning of her arm doesn't make natural sense. Quote, the left arm's flexion could not have been created by the environmental conditions where the body was found, she says. There was nothing present to hold the arm in such a position. It was divine gravity. The LASD, though, they had several ideas about what had happened to Mitrice. Of course, they first tried to blame the canyon's wildlife, as Mike Kessler just explained, and they even went so far as to theorize that maybe a rattlesnake bite had caused her death. They then blamed the area's flora and fauna, suggesting she succumbed to a poison oak rash, dying from anaphylactic shock. Police also tried to suggest a nearby creek's rushing water was to blame, and you can imagine how well that one went over. In the press conference where he confirmed Mitrice had been found, Sheriff Lee Baca would only say this, quote, We have no indication of a homicide at this point. I don't believe that the remains are capable of telling us a story. It's the party line that is still held today. Officially, the coroner's report declared Mitrice's cause of death as being undetermined. You have to wonder what might have been able to be determined had the proper protocols and procedures been followed when recovering her body. Unofficially, I think it's pretty clear. Mitrice was murdered. That's not theory. It's more or less unconfirmed fact. But the question is, who murdered Mitrice and why? With a case filled with so many questions, let's dive deeper into some of them right now. Hashtag question number one. Was Mitrice suffering some sort of mental health crisis leading up to her disappearance? Was she ever diagnosed with a mental health condition, and why hasn't that been made clear one way or the other? Why wasn't anyone more insistent that Mitrice should seek out help when she was so clearly going through something? What were the strange text messages that she sent to her mother on September 16th, and did they lay out her plans for the day? Did Mitrice even see Mildred when she went to her house after she left work on the 16th? Where else did she go that afternoon? Why did she go to her Aunt Lauren's house? And why did she leave her business cards scattered across the porch? What did Mitrice mean about anything mentioned in the letter that she left on her uncle's car? If her diary entries are to be believed, was Mitrice suffering from extreme sleep deprivation? Did Mitrice intend to go to Jeffrey's all along, or was it just a spur-of-the-moment decision? What was she looking for when she sat in the valet's car? Who is the Vanessa and the girl with the tattooed arms that she mentioned to the valet? Was it the same Vanessa that she had become infatuated with, or was it someone else? Were these people even real? Maitrice mentioned moving to Hawaii to the other diners at Jeffrey's, 
Did she actually have any intentions of doing so? Or was it just another nonsensical comment like the others that she was making? Why didn't Maitri simply go get her wallet out of her car when she was approached by the manager? Did she forget that she had money? Or was she purposely trying to have someone else pay for her meal? When the police arrived and searched her car, why didn't they report finding her wallet along with her cell phone? Why did they only report finding her license, marijuana paraphernalia, and half-empty bottles of alcohol? Why did Deputy Loreo deny telling Deputy Brower to perform the sobriety test? If the police weren't concerned about Mitrice's mental state, then why perform a sobriety test at all? Why lie about something so easily proven to be otherwise? Why didn't, or why couldn't, Leticia speak to Mitrice when she called the Lost Hills station after finding out about her daughter's arrest? Why did the deputy tell Leticia that they would be keeping Mitrice overnight when they were planning to release her in just a few minutes after their call? Who did Mitrice call four times that night? Did she call anyone? If she did, why have they never come forward? If she didn't, why did the police lie? Was she ever allowed to actually make her calls? Was the recording phone line actually broken that night? What was the piece of paper seen in Mitrice's hand in the holding cell footage? How did it end up crumpled on the floor? Did Mitrice actually make the comment that she was going to meet friends as she walked out of the station? Why didn't the police hold her overnight? What was their real reasoning for releasing Mitrice from custody? Did they just not want to deal with her? Why weren't mental health professionals brought in to help if they were as concerned as they first claimed to be? Who was the officer seen walking out of the station immediately after Mitrice? Why are the LASD protecting him and his identity? Why did Deputy Baumgartner tell Leticia that she had to wait a certain period of time before filing a missing persons report when that's against California Penal Code? Why did the Lost Hills Police behave so nonchalantly when Bill Smith called to tell them that he saw a person similar to Mitrice in his yard the morning she disappeared? Was it even Mitrice who had been in Bill Smith's yard? Why did the LASD and LAPD wait two days to conduct their first search? Why did they refuse to use scent-tracking dogs starting at the Lost Hill Station? Why didn't they want to find out how Mitrice might have gotten down to the Monte Nido area? What was the deal with Lieutenant Chu's email to Captain Martin? What was its purpose? Was the email designed to help cover someone's tracks? Why did Chu claim that he didn't remember writing the email or even discussing Mitrice's case with Loreo, despite the email being in the case file? Why did Loreo claim that he didn't remember the conversation either? Why was the addendum added to the sobriety test record? Why would you administer a sobriety test for basically kicks, as the Lost Hills police seemed to want to suggest? Why did Captain Martin lie about the video footage? saying it didn't exist. Why was the video footage hidden for months on end? Were there actually technical difficulties affecting the video, or was it being edited to remove certain events? The video, according to Leticia, had certain blips during its runtime, suggesting that it had been edited. If so, who edited the tape and why? 
what are the odds that Mitrice's body would be found so close to the Lost Hills Station, just eight miles away, and only two miles away from the last place that she would allegedly been seen? What are the odds? And then what are the odds that she wasn't found during these searches? What does this say about the Lost Hills search efforts? Or rather, what does this say about the possibility that Mitrice's body was only moved there after the fact? Why did detectives wait so long to alert the coroner about the body in the canyon? Why were law enforcement given access to helicopters before the coroner? Why didn't law enforcement take photographs of the body in surrounding area? Why didn't they collect soil samples? Why didn't they collect any evidence from the scene? Let's put it like that. Why did they disobey California penal codes and the coroner's professional advice? Why did the police move the body before allowing the coroner to see it? What were the police able to do, if anything, in the almost six and a half hours that they had exclusive access to Mitrice's body? Why did the detectives claim that they pulled on the skull and the entire skeleton appeared as the means of discovering her remains when that's patently untrue? Mitrice's skull was detached from her neck and thus they couldn't have done any of that. Why the lie then? Why was Mitrice's body naked? How did she come to be naked? How were her remains mummified if she had been exposed to the elements of wildlife for almost an entire year? Why was her left arm flecked so tightly? How did it come to be flexed in that position if it was naturally impossible for it to do so if left in the wild? Was Mitrice's body in the canyon all along or was it later moved to the canyon? Why weren't any of the proper tests run to collect possible evidence from her body? Who does the earring found with her remains belong to? Where are the missing bones from her body, including her hyoid bone? Mitrice's gums and teeth were said to be pink when her body was discovered, which suggests strangulation occurred. Was Mitrice strangled by somebody? How exactly did Mitrice die? When exactly did Mitrice die? Who exactly murdered Mitrice Richardson? And why are the LASD and LAPD so uninterested in finding out the answers to those questions? A man named Bob Olmsted, a former LASD commander who spoke to Newsweek about Mitrice's case and his former department's handling of it, had only this to say about the state of how things ran there. Quote, The men in charge of the department had a modus operandi for all potential troublesome situations. Lie and deny. The state of the police's nation in this country is one that's been having a reckoning moment for some time now, and the LASD is no different. Even just in the handling of Mitrice's case, individuals familiar with its details have been transferred, promoted, and shuffled off elsewhere, which is the case for former Captain Thomas Martin, and some have even been removed. Sheriff Lee Baca, he who claimed that Mitrice's remains couldn't tell a story about her death, he's now in federal prison, found guilty of obstruction in an FBI case, and he began serving his sentence in February of this year. His second-in-command, a man named Paul Tanaka, is serving five years for obstructing the same case right alongside Baca.
the things I keep coming back to in this case, one is the idea of how absolutely mishandled this case was from the jump of LASD's involvement. And the second is how much of a potentially better outcome could have been served had mental health services been called for my trees, as opposed to the police. Regardless of the way Deputy Loreo and Lieutenant Chu want to spin it, the police were called and a sobriety test was performed because something was wrong with my trees. She was not well in that moment, on that evening of September 16, 2009. She needed help. And what she got, instead, was a police department that, at best, didn't care about her best interests. And at worst, played the key role in her death. The fact of the matter is this. I personally believe Maitrese was murdered. When there's smoke, there's fire, they say. And when there is smoke, thick, opaque, unrelenting smoke surrounding one small police department in particular, there is a fire. And the fire in this case suggests that the arsonist was in that building all along. Los Angeles County has, quite literally, a new sheriff in town these days. Alex Villanueva. He contends that, though no one has ever been charged with Maitrese's death, the case still remains open. I just wonder when accountability will start to be taken against the officers who weren't honest about what all was in Maitrese's car, who created stories about if or why they administered a sobriety test to her. And certainly, I wonder when accountability will be taken against whoever it was that followed Maitrese Richardson out into the night just minutes after she was released and who has been protected by the LASD since that September night over a decade ago. I just wonder when there will be justice for Maitrese Richardson. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you're liking what you're hearing, please feel free to go leave a five-star review and rating for the show over on Apple Podcasts. If you're interested in joining the DAW Patreon crew, you can head on over to patreon.com slash darkashellpodcast to see what level might be up your alley of interest. There's a new Patreon level, and it only costs $1. You can support DAW and the work I do here for just a dollar a month and get yourself shouted out in an episode and have access to exclusive content on the Patreon, as well as, you know, helping to keep things keeping on over here. Like I said, head on over to patreon.com slash darkashellpodcast to check it all out. While you're waiting for next week's episode to drop, you can find Dark as Hell on Instagram at darkashellpodcast, which is all one word, and on Twitter at darkashellpod. Again, all one word. You're going to want to keep an eye out on the dot Instagram this week for upcoming surprises that have a little something to do with Black Friday and Cyber Monday. If you want to get in touch with me, you can email your comments or hashtag questions of your own over to me at darkasshellpodcast at gmail.com or head on over to darkasshellpodcast.com. Thanks again for listening. I'll catch you back here next week, ready to get dark as hell all over again.